0: And now, more educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion of the topic of the Safe Passage Project. From the time period of October 31st, 2013 through August 31st, 2014, Over 66,000 unaccompanied children and youth crossed the United States' southwest border. This according to a letter sent to New York school superintendents in September of 2014 from New York State Deputy School Commissioner Cosimo Tangora, Jr. Many may believe that New York is too far from that border to be affected by the influx of children. Actually, 4,200 of the unaccompanied youth were sent to live with sponsors in New York State. I have a particular interest in this because the school district where I live gained 1,400 students during the summer of 2014. That's equivalent to gaining two additional middle schools. My local board of education is now scrambling to find classroom space and funding to educate these additional children. So what happens next? How are these children processed through our legal system to determine whether or not they can stay in the U.S.A.? my next guest may shed some light on these important questions. Claire Thomas is a staff attorney with the Safe Passage Project and adjunct professor at New York Law School. Before joining the Safe Passage Project team in 2014, she advocated for the rights of African and Caribbean immigrants as a legal intern, then staff attorney at the African Services Committee, a Harlem nonprofit that assists persons living with HIV-AIDS. She is a member of the Immigration and Nationality Law Committee of the Association of the Bar of the City of New York, as well as chair of the Youth and Children's Subcommittee. She is also an adjunct member of the Association's African Affairs Committee and co-chair of its Gender Subcommittee. She has contributed articles on women's rights to Perspectives on Global Issues and to Woman for Women International's Critical Half Journal. Claire, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here.
0: Great. I appreciate your time. So Claire, what is the Safe Passage Project?
1: So Safe Passage is a nonprofit organization that's housed at New York Law School, and we've been in existence since 2006, but in 2008 to 2011, we started to see increasing numbers of young people coming to the United States unaccompanied. So our director, Professor Lenny Benson, who's a professor at New York Law School, started to work with these young people who were at that point primarily in foster care to help them to gain legal status in the United States. And what she saw was that beginning in 2010, 2011, there were more and more young people who were in removal proceedings, which means deportation proceedings in the New York Immigration Court. So Safe Passage started to to appear as a nonprofit organization in the New York Immigration Court on one of the judge's juvenile dockets, which are special dockets just for young people in the fall of 2012. So since the fall of 2012, we've been in the immigration court once a month and we're there to uh, to screen young people who don't have lawyers for legal relief and then to help them to find attorneys. To um, assist them with their immigration cases pro bono. So then we're behind the scenes mentoring and training the pro bono attorneys to make sure that they're competent to represent these young people in the various um, forms of immigration relief that they have. So we work as a pro bono clearinghouse as well as um, a provider in the in the immigration court. We provide trainings, we help with um, with resources, and we do, we do a lot is what I've realized.
0: It sounds like it. It sounds sounds almost overwhelming. Um, no, go ahead. Sure.
1: At times, at times it okay. is, but, but we have a lot of volunteers and a lot of wonderful people that so tirelessly donate their times that we're able to make it work.
0: Great. Now, uh, just walk us through the process sure. from the moment a child is is picked up by Border Patrol. How do they end up in foster care? It seems like there's a lot that has to occur between the moment they're picked up and the moment they end up in foster care, especially in a state as far away as New York?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question, and I think that's a very important question. And what's... Um, is important is actually most of the children don't end up in, in, in foster care. That's what we were seeing before. But what we're seeing now is young children who are apprehended by Customs and Border Patrol, so by a branch of the Department of Homeland Security at the southern border. And then within 72 hours, they are turned over or they are supposed to be turned over to the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is abbreviated ORR. And that's the agency that is charged with caring for young people. So they are in ORR custody until they can be reunited with someone who's called a sponsor. So that person doesn't um, isn't actually sponsoring the young person for their papers, meaning the the ability to stay in the United States lawfully. But that sponsor is someone who can provide care, meaning housing. And also ensure that that young person attends their removal or their deportation hearing in immigration court. So it's a person who can take care of the kid while the kid is in removal proceedings. So when the child has a sponsor that lives in New York, that's when the child is is brought here at the sponsor's expense to New York. And the child's case is then transferred from Texas or Arizona or California or the southern one of the southern border states up here to the New York immigration court.
0: Okay, now how does someone be become, or how are sponsors identified?
1: Sponsors are identified by the child. So when the child is is in custody, um, immigration, basically a social worker from the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is again that agency that's caring for children, hopefully within seventy two hours of apprehension, would speak with the child about if there was a person here in the United States that could care for them. Um, so sometimes the sponsor is a parent, sometimes it is a, a an older sister or brother, an uncle, an aunt, even a godparent, or a close family friend. So someone who can who can be there for the child, meaning that they can house the child and hopefully ensure that the child attends the immigration court removal proceedings.
0: Okay. So if a child cannot identify a sponsor. For example, they're running away from a gang from Guatemala, um, and they leave their family and everything to save their own lives. Um, they, They get here. They don't know anyone in the United States. Is that how they end up in the care of organizations such as, let's say, the Children's Village in Dobbs Ferry?
1: Sure, and so Children's Village Dobbs Ferry is one of these ORR um, facilities that would care for children. So they operate. My understanding is they operate in two capacities. One is when children are apprehended at the southern border, where they're sent, meaning which ORR facility is where there's bed space available that night. So there could be children who are sent here to New York and stay in Dobbs Ferry while they are reunited with those sponsors. So the sponsor would have to go through. Ideally, we go through a background check to make sure that they don't have uh, criminal offenses concerning children so that they're an appropriate person to a safe person for the child to be released to. Um, and so for the children who don't have anybody, oftentimes we we find children who are, quote unquote, street kids, right? Kids who are who are orphans or whose family situation has completely deteriorated so that they have no one and then they have no one to reunite with here in the United States. That's a problem. And yes, you're exactly right that those children would theoretically remain in custody unless they had a sponsor uh, for whom they could be released to. Okay.
0: Now, are there certain circumstances where a court will say, you know what, this this youngster is going to be given an extension of stay in the United States, or? You know, or this youngster must go back immediately. I mean, what what happens in a court? I mean, this is so foreign to a lot of Americans, as yeah. strange as that may sound.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I think it's. I think it is, and yeah, no. I think you're exactly right. It is any kind of court proceeding, unless you're you're used to it. Is this foreign? And immigration court doesn't show up so often on TV, right? We're not used to seeing mm-hmm. it at Law and Order or anything, so it is a <laughs> bit different. But what happens is. um Anyone in immigration court in these removal proceedings would have an initial, what's called a master calendar hearing. And that means there's a lot of people in the courtroom and people are called up one by one to speak in front of the judge. So in immigration, there's no appointed counsel, um, meaning you have the right to a lawyer at your own expense, but if you can't afford a lawyer or if you don't have the good fortune of of connecting with an organization to provide you with counsel for free, then you're on your own in immigration court. And that's where organizations like Safe Passage and other organizations came in when we realized the children were standing alone in immigration court. So at that first hearing, the judge would ask the young person his name, if that person who was the adult next to him, if, if he brought an adult with him, where is the person that is his sponsor And the judge would ask him what how he would like to proceed. So for a lot of young people. so what the judge is doing is giving the young people more time to be able to obtain immigration relief essentially and and for the kids that's not at court that's with different agencies of immigration
0: okay now are the courts um addressing these kids in their native language primarily spanish I'm, i would assume
1: Primarily Spanish, but we're seeing more and more young people who are um, from Mayan indigenous groups who are speaking Quiche or Quichua or young people from from Ecuador actually that are Quechua speakers and so the court is is struggling to to find interpreters in those languages as well. Um, so yes the court will provide always Spanish interpretation, but for young people who speak Quiche or there's even languages such as mom where there's not a lot of speakers of that language, the court is trying and, and usually is able to at least
0: I, actually, I'm just taking aback back now because, um, some of these places we go to as, um, tourists. Yes. And when you mention Ecuador, that's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I mean, you have the Galapagos Islands. You, you know, you, you think well, who would run away from this? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> but of course we're seeing it from an entirely different perspective. It's, you know, their yeah. reality is not what we're experiencing. Um, and I know a lot of kids are coming from, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and very few are actually coming from Mexico. Um, is there a reason that part of the, um, South America is so, is, is, is scaring kids up to the United States?
1: Sure, I think I'm gonna go back to your Mexico comments. So the Mexico kids were not seeing Mexican children because they're summarily turned away from the border. So Mexican and Canadian children, because those are contiguous countries, meaning they touch the United States, because of different treaties, those children are treated differently. So Uh we don't see a lot of Mexican children in in our immigration court system because um, they're not subject to the same procedures that children from any other country other than Canada or Mexico would be treated. So they could be facing very similar problems at home, but we're not even seeing them here in in the immigration court because they can't even... um, across the border. So that's a, whole, that's a whole different issue, essentially. But for the children that we're seeing, you're right. The majority of children are from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, and those numbers have been increasing. We have a pretty um, equal numbers from all of those countries, and we have children uh, fleeing a variety of circumstances, including total breakdown of the family and child abuse and no um, government services, meaning no children's services.
0: Do you have, I, I know you've dealt with, you know, many of these children. Uh, do you have any stories or examples of, because that just seems to me, I couldn't imagine being a, a child and 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 walking from here to New Jersey, let alone walking from here um, halfway across the continent. So um, can you give us some examples of what these children's journeys look like?
1: sure uh, the children 's journeys we've we've learned, and especially this summer when we saw increasing numbers of children in, in immigration court, that the journey is very is very treacherous to come here to the United States. We have children, I mean, in these countries, they're unable to obtain a visa to come here lawfully on a plane. So we have children who are coming primarily by land and coming through Mexico who are, who are riding on top of the freight trains to come here through Mexico. And those trains are, um, are also drug cartels that have criminals of all sorts on top of them. And we're seeing more and more young women and boys as well telling us not only where they raped and sexually assaulted, but how many times they were coming here to the United States were kidnapped along the way and held for ransom in Mexico, Um, all kinds of of horror stories, Um, just truly, truly awful things that that happened to them along the way. So, yeah, so we're seeing that and um, as the children, I mean, it's not uncommon for me to hear 10 and 11 year olds telling me truly, truly horrible things that happened to them along the way where they don't even really have the words yet to express what happened to them. Well,
0: you know, what? I, I just wanted my listeners to hear that because me, personally, I don't really have the stomach for it. I'd be crying all the time yeah. if I had to listen to this. So, but at this time, uh, let's take a short break. Okay. Uh, but stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest attorney, Claire Thomas, regarding the Safe Passage Project. Um, Claire, exactly where are the volunteer attorneys found?
1: Sure, our volunteer attorneys are attorneys from over uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, who... uh I come from all different practice areas of law who basically wanted to to give back and wanted to, to help young people in some way or another. So some are are our friends and and family members who we've recruited who have then talked to to their friends and the circle continues. People that have heard our director, Professor Lenny Benson, speak at continuing legal education events or some people who were her former students as well. We have a strong um, alumni base here at New York Law School who participate, but really it's attorneys from all different practice areas all over New York and New Jersey and Connecticut as well.
0: Now, of those attorneys, how many of them are, or do you see a higher percentage of the bilingual attorneys volunteering, or all attorneys uh, volunteering from all backgrounds?
1: Sure, um, Not all of the attorneys are bilingual in Spanish um, or of the indigenous languages that these children are speaking. A lot speak other languages that you know as well. But what we do have is a large amount of of Spanish speaking volunteers who were able to then pair with an attorney for the duration of the case so that we'd have an interpreter and an attorney, both working as, as volunteers on a young person's case. And then oftentimes we have a, a New York law school law student involved in the case as well. So we'd have a team then helping to, to represent the child. Hmm.
0: It, it just uh, it sounds uh, beyond altruistic. It sounds like this is almost an absolutely necessary um, project because I couldn't imagine these children going through the system without this level of support
1: no I I couldn't imagine either and when you see a young person you know in immigration court and that's how this started was professor Benson saw a, a little boy he was about eight I believe in immigration court by himself trying to figure out what the judge was saying and trying to answer questions from a trained you know government prosecutor right a trained attorney and just how this did not work and this young boy had a an educated adult, to be able to represent herself in immigration court, I think would be difficult, but let alone a child, and let alone a child in a different language, is, it's, it's just not possible.
0: Yes, it's, it's definitely mission impossible. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Professor Benson, the founder of uh, the Safe Passage Project.
1: Sure, so Lenny is is our is our founder, right? She's been a law professor here at New York Law School for 20 years, and then she, started, she founded Safe Passage in about 2006 and then it got uh it increased in 2008 and then 2010 2011 is when the idea to come to immigration court actually actually happened so Lenny is a professor here at New York Law School and she's not a clinical professor she's a professor and teaches you know administrative law civil procedure immigration law and then she and I co-teach a project-based learning class which is our safe passage class so we have about 13 uh, upper-level law students who work with us throughout the year on um, assisting with these cases as well. But uh, Safe Passage is essentially her pro bono project. She's not she's not compensated for for her time, and she she works on Safe Passage um, above and beyond her, her regular full-time teaching load. So so it's a lot. She's a very busy lady, I'll put it that way.
0: I could imagine. I reached out to her, and she was like, you know, she would love to, <laughs> but she's nonstop doing interviews. Yeah.
1: And she literally is. So, um, Mm. you know, we're so grateful for her tireless energy because um, with her and then with all our volunteers, we have have a lot of people who don't sleep much. I'll put
0: it that way. I can imagine. Um, What is special immigrant juvenile status? What does that mean?
1: Right. So special immigrant juvenile status, we also call it SIG, S-I-J-S. And that is a type of legal relief for young people who are under the age of 21, who are unmarried who have been abandoned, abused, or neglected by one or both of their parents and whom a state court has taken jurisdiction over their case and who it's not in their best interest to go back to their home countries. So that's a lot. But what that means is that that's a way for young people to, to stay here legally in the United States and puts them on a path to getting a green card if they can show that they've been abandoned, abused, or neglected by one or both of their parents. And so, and so, uh, special immigrant juvenile status also entails a state court procedure, and here in New York, most often that's the family court in New York, appointing the caretaker of that young person. So the aunt, the godparents, the older sister, the person who that young person is living with. Sometimes it is their O.R.R. sponsor. As their as their legal guardian here in the United States, which is so important for these young people for permanency and for stability and for enrollment in 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 healthcare and medical and education and and everything like that, even signing permission slips for school, it's so 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 important for these kids to have a legal guardian.
0: Now, where where I live, right here in Hempstead, Long Island. Um, we have had, and this is no exaggeration, it's in the news locally at least, uh, 1,400 and counting uh, kids, unaccompanied minors, come uh, that have been sent to this school district. Right. And, and um, a friend of mine is a, one of the Board of Education members, and he says what's overwhelming is that there's no money following these kids. Yeah. And And they have to reach out to the feds and say, wait a minute. You just sent us the equivalent. Our middle schools in this area are approximately seven to eight hundred students. So you just sent us the equivalent of nearly two middle schools but without any um resources to follow them. Um how is how should a school district like Hempstead uh deal with this? I mean, what are their all their options?
1: That's a great question. I don't know enough about education law to be able to, to comment specifically, um, but in terms of, you know, we have an obligation to, to, to educate the, the young people that are here. But in terms of resources, I don't know. We we have very few legal resources as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I apologize, but I'm not your your go-to person for resources. I don't have an answer to that. And I hope that it would be the state or the county or on some level the federal government that would be able to to assist that school district because, as you stated, that's a lot and resources are limited for everybody. And there's an obligation to educate these young people. But, but how do we do it without resources? I don't know. Yeah, and
0: I do apologize. You did tell me that education is not your <laughs> your world. Yeah, um, yeah so, no, I, um,
1: I, I commend the school district, and um, I, I wish I had an answer for them, but hopefully New York State or or the federal government will be able to help them. Yeah, and
0: I think that's necessary because um, in the news yesterday there was protest because at this point they're turning kids back, which were not le- which legally I don't believe they can do. But um, up to 30 Hispanic kids have been um, not allowed to register who live in with a sponsor in the Hempstead school district because their class sizes are now 40, 50 students in a in a classroom. So um, it, it'll be interesting how this plays out, only because it'll have impact on the many other areas who have considerable numbers of students, especially out in the Southwest.
1: Sure.
0: So So um, it's something to keep an eye on. So what other immigration alternatives exist for these children. You mentioned yeah. SIJS, but what, uh, what yeah,
1: else is Yeah, we have asylum. So a lot of these young people are, are eligible for, for asylum, which is for people who have been uh, victims of persecution or have a well-founded fear of being persecuted in their home countries based on their race, their religion, their nationality, their membership in a um, in a particular social group, or their political opinion. So for a lot of these young people who have asylum claims, in a variety of different ways, we have young people who are who are very religious and who have refused to join gangs because of their religion, and they're able to articulate asylum claims um, based on on being persecuted because of their religion. We also have young women who are again victimized by the gang, basically for the fact that they are women um, and they are girls, and the gang members think of them as their property, and they're able to to articulate. Um, asylum claims as well, and a variety of other factors. But yes, asylum claims for, for these young people, definitely. We're hearing more and more of them. We also see young people who are victims of human trafficking, and there's um, a form of immigration relief called T, non-immigrant status. Most people call it a T visa, and that's for, for people who are victims of human trafficking. And then for for young people, really for anyone who's a victim of, of a serious crime here in the United States, there's something called U non-immigrant status, which is a U visa, and we have young people who are eligible for those as well. And then it's happened twice this summer since these these surge of priority dockets started, where young people have come in removal proceedings who have actually had a claim to U.S. citizenship. So as crazy as that sounds, you can actually be a citizen of this country and not necessarily know it because you're four. And there are a variety of other factors, so we do have young people who turn out to be U.S. citizens as well, um, which is which is quite interesting when they're in removal proceedings.
0: It could very well be they didn't know they were born here. <laughs>
1: Yeah, not necessarily that they didn't know they were born here, but um, our citizenship laws are, are complicated, and depending on where mom and dad were born, and, and that relationship, and some other factors, yes, I you know this sounds crazy as it's coming out of my mouth, but you could be a U.S. citizen and not know it. It depends on on who your family was and where they were born, and so it's it's not uncommon for that to happen. Uh, so yes, there are forms of legal relief in 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 terms of that these children sometimes are U.S. citizens as well.
0: Wow. Um, you have provided us with a wealth of information, and I, I I really do feel so much more informed about what's going on with these children. So I, I greatly appreciate the information you've shared. Uh, we have been speaking with Claire Thomas, staff attorney with the Safe Passage Project and adjunct professor at New York Law School. To learn more about Claire and the Safe Passage Project, visit their website at www.safepassageproject.org. That's safepassageproject.org. Claire, thanks for joining us.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of your day.
0: You too. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Take care.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>